Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Creative Live, the world's best online classroom for creative professionals, with classes on songwriting, engineering, mixing, and mastering. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is also brought to you by Sound Toys, an audio effects developer dedicated to bringing color, character, and creativity to the world of digital audio. And now your hosts, Joey Surges, Joe Wenasek, and Al Levy. All right. So, welcome to the Joey Sturges Forum podcast again. Here we are. We've got a really cool dude on with us today, Mr. Christopher Crummit. I like to call you Crumpet or Trumpet. That's what I call him. <laughs> that's pretty. No- that's what they called me in like high school, preschool. So it makes sense. He's gonna punch <laughs> you in the nose, Joey. It's pretty normal. I don't know how people put the P in there, but it's <laughs> anyone who announces my name. There's a, they take out an M and add a P. You should hear what people do to my last name. Holy shit. I can imagine. Well, Joel, with your last name, I didn't even know how to spell it for the first six months that I knew you. <laughs> it's so, it's exactly pronounced as it's written. It, it's really simple, but no one can get it. So, yeah, but going back in time, whenever I have to like update a link or something and I see where I wrote your name, I noticed I got it wrong a lot a while ago. I've, I went on a mission to fix it, but yeah, your name's rough. I'm going to get a cool stage name, but the problem is my first name is Joel, which doesn't lead to very many cool stage names, so I'm kind of screwed. Yeah, you're fucked. So, Chris, I got a story, and I, I want to know if you remember. Do you remember the the first Prada record? Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if, how bit. many people know this, but uh, so, yeah, the whole thing went down with Prada, and I, I did their first album, and at that point in my career, I had no, well, first of all, it wasn't a career at that point. <laughs> I was just recording bands in a garage, but I didn't know how to master. And the label was pretty worried about it. I think we employed you to do it, right? Yeah, and I'm not sure that I knew how to master back then either, to tell you the truth. <laughs> but um, but I tried. Yeah, what year? I think it was 2000, 2005, 2006, maybe. Yeah. Oh, wow. Way back. Yeah. It was a little ways back. So, yeah, I always remember that. That was a very motivational moment for me because I didn't like the fact that someone else had to do something that I wasn't capable of doing. Yeah. And it kind of Which like... Which is why I started doing that stuff in yeah, the first place. Really put a boot in my ass to fucking figure out how to <laughs> <laughs> do some mastering. So... Uh, thanks for that, and also uh, thanks for the great job you did because I think you made the record sound a lot better. So yeah, it was a cool record to work on. It was definitely a turning point in music, and with like a rise, you know, the label I'd been working with for a long time, and uh, it was honestly one of the first records that I had mastered for someone else. So I'm glad that it actually turned out, and that it motivated you to uh, get better at your craft. You know, the other thing, too, that was interesting about that time period is there was sort of a lot of people talking about you because you did that Drop Dead Gorgeous. And I just remember, you know, we were driving in the car and they're like, Joey, you got to hear this record. This is awesome. And they'd show it to me and I'd be like, fuck, man, that sounds awesome. How do I do that? (laughs) I remember having some conversations about that record early on, some uh, AOL Instant Messenger chats. AOL. (laughs) Hell yeah, dude. So awesome. (laughs) It just got 1999 in here. Oh yeah, <laughs> AOL chat was the thing in 2005. Yeah, that kind of blows my mind that you guys knew each other and this was a whole thing back then. Because honestly, I had never even heard of that band until like 2010 or something. It come from such a different end of the heavy spectrum that what you guys are talking about, I have no memory of it whatsoever. Like. I didn't even know it was going on. Shows you where I'm at. Well, they were kind of the start, I think, to the success of Rise because oh um, yeah, they got sold off to a different label and it was like for a large amount of money. Well, I know now what they are. It's kind of it's funny with uh, a lot of those Rise bands on the part of the metal scene that I was in. Nobody took those bands seriously at oh, all. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they, yeah, like we didn't realize that they were actually really big bands and that it was a massive movement in music that was going to kind of take things over. We just thought that it was some silly shit with like bands (laughs) with funny haircuts dancing around and 
doing techno. Yeah, and why the fuck are their keyboards all of a sudden sort of thing? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I remember kind of thinking that too. But like, I remember making that Drop Dead record and being like, what is going on sometimes? And being like, how funny can we make this? <laughs> but then it's like, this is actually pretty freaking cool. Like, And I got it. Once we were really in it, I got it. I got what they were doing. And um, it was different for me too, because I come from like a, you know... 80s metal to grunge to like loving vagrant records bands and stuff wasn't really in touch with like the mid 2000s scene stuff so it was interesting being thrown into that but it's pretty cool because i kind of know what you're talking about al because i watched all my friends be like what the fuck are you doing like yeah who are these (laughs) bands you're working with like what is going on you know it was like drop dead gorgeous and then devil wears prada was like clearly into drop dead and doing their thing and then those two bands and Rise kind of spawned this whole new genre of music that, that, that grew and got huge. The moment when I knew that shit was changing was when my band, who was a death metal band, was out on tour with some, some hardcore bands like Acacia Strain and Joffer Cowboy, which at that point in time was a deathcore band. This was in 2007. And we just got done playing a super violent set with people breaking each other's bones and all kinds of gang violence and seriously, a pretty scary show. At the moment we got done playing, the house music comes on and it's Blink-182 and the entire crowd started singing it. And it's just the strangest thing ever for me because growing up, you'd go to a heavy show and that would never happen. Nothing like that ever. Oh, yeah. Hell no. Yeah, that's like alternate universe stuff. Well, you got a melting pot going on. And I noticed it, the same thing happening like uh, when Ask Alexandria first came to work with me. And, you know, I didn't know who the hell they were, but they knew who I was from MySpace. And, uh, I started recording their songs and I'm like, man, this is just, this is so weird. And I just can't wait to get this done and get it out of my life. And it turns out to be the biggest band that I ever worked with. So (laughs) I remember that back in the day, I had kind of a interested experience with the scene the first time, because it was right around that time when that stuff was coming out and I was giving a guitar clinic and the clinic guy sent me up with some random Legion Hall show. Like, since you're in town, you got a bass player and a backtrack. You want to just come play some show at the bar that we put together? And I'm like, yeah, sure. So I had nothing else to do. We walk in, and there's all these kids with, like, pink belts on and, like, really tight jeans and, like, really <laughs> dumb hair. And I'm coming from, like, a, a Swedish metal background. You know, I was, like, a thrash metal dude and all that stuff. And I walk in, I'm like, what the fuck? So I get up there and I'm playing my shred show and everybody just sitting there with like, looking at me like I'm crazy, like instrumental shred guitar. And then, uh, you know, they started like bowing down and like moving their fingers like spaghetti. Like it was, it was just really weird and awkward. And I got off stage and then all of a sudden the next band comes on and it just starts playing opens. And like, everybody's just throwing all these ninja moves and punches. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? I had no idea. Just came out of nowhere. I'm like, there was like 300 kids here throwing back fists. What, 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 when did this come in? Yeah, it came in and it <laughs> never went away. Actually, I have a question for all of you guys in here based on how weird everyone thought this stuff when it was happening and, you know, with Asking Alexandria being like the biggest thing you've done unexpectedly. So have you guys felt ever that you can't really tell when you're working with a band whether or not anyone's going to care? I'm just asking because I've worked on so many records where I've been like, yes, this is so fucking good. And then nobody cares. And then work on one where the band basically is like a local band that got a record deal where you have to just surgically construct everything. And (laughs) I know exactly where you're going with this. Yeah. And you're like, God, this is so horrible. And then it gets huge. Um, I, I don't think the answer is that simple. Honestly, for me, I think there's a couple levels of that. Definitely. I've had the experience where a band comes in and I'm like, what the fuck? Like, uh, (laughs) what am I supposed to do here? And then, but by the time the record's done or, you know, we're, we're getting to like the mixing process. I know, you know what I mean? Like you hear the music, you hear the songs, you hear what people are going to like about it. You're like taking a shower and singing these songs and you're like, what am I, what? (laughs) This is actually pretty awesome. You know, you you get that emotional connection with the songs and that's when you know that it's going to have some sort of level of success, but I think it's actually easier to identify when something's going to be successful when you start to attach yourself at the end. 
I feel like a lot of projects where like from the get go, not a lot of projects. Let me take this back. <laughs> Some projects where like from the get go, I'm like, I love these songs. This is amazing. I'm emotionally attached to it. I don't know if by the end I have as clear of an understanding of if I'm just attached to the music or if I know that it's going to be popular, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So there's both those levels. And then there's records that you know are awesome and the label loves them and just the timing isn't right, i.e. like Closure in Moscow, bands like that that I've worked with that I know I made an awesome record. I, I, I know it's amazing, but, you know, it, it wasn't the right time. I, I definitely feel what you're saying, Al and Chris. Mm-hmm. I've experienced that on many, many, many projects. Like there was this Before Their Eyes record that I did and... uh I was like, man, these songs are amazing. Like, I don't see how this can't succeed. And of course it flopped because they didn't have the right marketing team. Nobody knew how to position it on radio. They didn't have the money or the backing to, you know, get anywhere with that kind of mentality anyway. So it really comes down to just there's two things to it. There's two sides. You've you got to have great material, but you also have to have, at the end of the day, the material is a product. And you have to have somebody that knows what to do with that. So I think there's bands that come along who have a great social following and a great fan base. They might not be the most talented musicians in the world, but that fan base is how it enables them to push a product onto those people. And those people already love whatever it is, and they just are attracted to it, and they'll take to it. So it's a two-way street. Definitely. And I think that there's a third level to it as well which is that the band itself has the, I guess, the emotional fortitude and maturity to not implode. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) definitely. Because being in a band is completely difficult and hardcore. (laughs) It is. When you get to the touring level, absolutely. And I think that one of the toughest things about that is to like, one of the parts of creating good art and creating like really emotional music is being somewhat emotionally unstable absolutely then you have to be a stable team (laughs) and you have to like sell your product like joey said and you have to stick together and that's a that's a tough thing for bands for sure well it takes a certain kind of person to be able to turn it on when it comes to expressing the art Mm -hmm. and then turn it off when it comes to taking care of business. Well, that spawns a question here for you, Chris. So when you have situations like that in the studio, for example, because it can get just as difficult in the studio making a record with certain members of certain bands versus on the road when you have to live with them, how do you deal with those really, really difficult people that are just intent on my way or piss off? I know everything. Everybody else in the band is an idiot, and so are you, Mr. Producer. We're doing it like this. What strategies do you like to employ to deal with I would call them like troublemaker band kids, guys, whatever. Well, I mean, if that really happens, I just have to lay down the law pretty much, you know, and and there's a little give and take with that too, because sometimes they're not wrong, you know? So you kind of have to know when, when to play along and when to um, put your foot down. But honestly, I've been pretty lucky to not deal with very many people like that over the past 10, 12 years. The bands that have guys like that are more like when I was younger and getting less important projects and guys that really hadn't been around the block. You know what I mean? At this point in my career, I I rarely face problems like that. I have noticed from personal experience that typically with few exceptions, and there are obviously exceptions, but with few exceptions, the more pro and seasoned a band is, the less I've seen that kind of stuff happen. The highest, I guess, frequency of that that I've ever dealt with has been with baby national bands. It just got signed. Egos are bigger than my house. Um, but they don't know shit because they're basically a local band that just got their deal. Yeah, they've just been fast-tracked. Yeah, that's... uh, Well, I mean, some of them put in the work to get signed, and yeah, I just mean when they're making that transition from being an unsigned band, they could have been touring regionally and have a large following online and all that, but just I feel like when a band first gets that contract and gets a corporation behind them and gets the the validation of being signed, it, especially when they're really, really young, it can do numbers for 
how they behave and how yeah. how important they think their opinions are. But, you know, actually, I think it's very wise of you to say that those types of people aren't always wrong. Sometimes I've noticed that the guy in the band who has the strongest artistic vision can be hated by the other guys for whatever reason. And mm-hmm. sometimes majority rules is a bad idea because sometimes it's the one guy that's making the most trouble who's got the best musical idea. So it's important to be able to figure out which situation is which. Exactly. That's that's a really important part of being a producer to me is to be able to assess the situation and and know how to work with each person in the band separately to make sure that you get what you need out of the band and it's not a majority rules situation. It's actually rarely a majority rules situation. And that's the other side of dealing with the guy that wants everything his way is dealing with the other four guys that want their equal say. You know what I mean? So you're, you're dealing with this guy who, who knows and he's confident that all his ideas are right. But then you also have to balance out with these guys who are upset because honestly, the, the people you're talking about are not adults. Like a lot of these bands that are are just getting signed, like they're not, man. I mean, when I was 22, I was not really an adult. Like I was 22, I could drink, I could do whatever, but I was also freaking jealous and selfish and all those things that still carry over from being a kid. And so they haven't learned to work as a unit yet. And you have to balance the two sides and amplify it. And it's not a majority rules thing. Half the time, the guy who knows everything demoed everything in his bedroom and that's what got them signed. Found a bunch of musicians or he has like, you know, guys that play, but they didn't even play on the demos. And now all of a sudden they, they want to say, and that might not necessarily be the right yeah. move. So you, you got to know what moves to make. That's all. Yeah. I was going to say that there was a study I read or heard about, or I don't remember what the exact source is that I had heard that the brain isn't fully developed enough until you're around the age 25 ish to really understand, like fully to make decisions and weigh their consequences, like a hundred percent right and wrong. Thinking about the long-term consequences of like, if I do this, then this, 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 this. So kids kind of have that disconnect where they're just like, well, you know, I'm just going to do it. Fuck it. And that that's definitely, I think, a great point that you brought up, Chris, in the studio is being a producer puts you in a unique spot psychologically because you kind of, it's like a game, you know, you have to, you know, yeah. you have to be a shoulder to cry on as oh, well yeah. as sometimes a badass and you have to learn how to, I wouldn't say manipulate, but sometimes manipulate, but massage everybody into a team that's going to take the group of kids that you're working with and get a synergistic effect that's greater than the sum of each individual yeah. and make a record out of it. And that's just one of the fine arts that you know, we can talk about all day, but you have to learn. And you do have to manipulate. And it's, you're not manipulating people, but you do have to manipulate the situation to, to make sure that it works. You, you're right. You got to massage a little bit and you got to cater. Well, I think a lot of people compare it to babysitting or something or like parenting. <laughs> <laughs> that's got, yeah, that's a somewhat condescending way, but it is, it's true, but it's kind of a condescending <laughs> term. <laughs> yeah. Like uh, I've noticed I'll be very careful not to say I sort of in my mind, I always know like, okay, I know exactly what I'm going to do to this record, but I'm not going to say it right away because I need to sort of figure out like who's going to be the person that's against that. And does that person really matter to the equation? Or the the other side of it too, is, is there an underdog? Is there somebody in the band that does have really good ideas, but everyone shuts him down just because of where he, where his rank is within the role? Because he's the drummer or he's like the bass player or something, or yeah, or he's the new guy. (laughs) Yeah, got to figure out how to stand up for that person and figure out when that's appropriate. Exactly. I have definitely seen that happen a number of times where the most talented guy in the band, believe it or not, is the bass player or the drummer. And Bullshit. No, (laughs) I have seen it plenty of times. And they have trouble getting their ideas out because the guitar players are like, I'm the guitar player. I should be the one getting these ideas out. So, yeah, walking that line is definitely, definitely interesting. So I guess, Chris, like, how do you handle it when I guess you have to have somebody track stuff that isn't the guy who's accredited for tracking it like say you have a drummer that's a better guitar player than everybody else in the band how do you go about approaching that so that you keep the peace really the most important thing with situations like that is honesty there are some bands where you know the guitar player knows that the drummer is a better guitar player than him maybe the 
singer or the bass player wrote the songs and so it makes more sense for that person to play guitar and it's just understood that way and it's not a problem and then there's some bands with egos and stuff but really the best thing and what you have to do is just be honest with people whether it's you know taken as hurtful or not it's never meant to be but you got a guy who just can't play a part and there's someone else in the band who can do it regardless of what instrument it is you just have to tell them you can't beat around the bush you can't wait forever or put it off and one of the easiest things to do is just have them play the part play it back and just say does this sound good to you does this do you like do you feel good about how this is sounding because blah 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 can we know we he can do it should we just let him try you know st- stuff like that you don't have to be mean about it but you do have to be upfront and you do have to be kind of blunt about it yeah just be real yeah yeah everyone has the same goal everyone's trying to make a good record so that's that's just what you have to do yep and i've noticed oftentimes in a situation where the guy who's the most talented isn't the guy who's supposed to be playing that instrument that that guy might not have the confidence to step up to the plate just because of the band dynamics so i feel like sometimes you need to even encourage them to get out of their comfort zone and come track the part. Definitely. Yeah, that I've just noticed that I hear you with the honesty thing, but I feel like sometimes, you know, going back to reading the situation, I feel like sometimes I have to maybe pull the wool over their eyes and maybe do it myself or do it when they go out with the guy that's actually really good because there's just, in some cases, just they just won't understand like even if you do tell them up front. Yeah, no matter how good of a mediator or, you know, how much you understand about psychological tactics or whatever, sometimes it just there's no way around it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And what you're saying, AL and, and Joey, is like that's kind of outside the bubble of being honest to people. <laughs> it is. That I'm talking about. Like if you're talking about having someone else in the band play a part, then I feel like you really do have to be upfront with other people. Otherwise you're just setting this band up for disaster. You know, if you're get, if you're having band guys go behind other band guys backs. Oh no, you're right. You're that, right. That, that's a little weird, but like, and, and I think that's what I meant by the honesty thing, you know, and I do try to be upfront about it, but if there's people that just aren't hearing it and I have to do something after the fact, then it's done and it, no one ever knows. And it doesn't matter because it's them who get the credit and it's all fine. The record's good. doesn't matter. You're absolutely right with that. One of the things that you never want to be accused of is plotting band members against each other. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely not. It's important to realize that while one guy might be a lot more talented than the other guys, as soon as the record is over, they are going to have to live in a van or a bus together for the next 18 months pushing this. Mm-hmm. And if you set a chain in motion of events that mm-hmm. is super negative and destroy their relationship and they break up as a band, it hurts you because the record won't get the uh, the push that it needs. And Yeah, what was even yeah. the point of making the record in the first place? Yeah, exactly. Chris, you, you're building a new studio now, right? Yep. Why don't we shift gears and talk a little bit about that? I had just finished a build in January this year and I did like a little mixing suite and overdub or I, you know, it's like a kind of like a vocal booth in a little lounge. And cool. I feel like building out a studio or even a control room poses a bunch of challenges and, you know, design things and stuff like that, that are quite foreign to a lot of people when you sit down and start thinking about like what makes a good room and what are, how do I isolate it and what's the best way. So why don't you talk about that a little bit? I think it'd be really interesting for listeners to see what kind of goes into doing a build because it's quite the intimidating feat to do. It is a pretty crazy thing to do. And I don't think you realize how intense it's going to be until you're done because <laughs> it never it's it's pretty relentless it never stops um you're always running into problems like no matter how much you think things out there's always something that's going to creep up and you're going to be like how did i not think of that and this and that i i actually built a brand new building from the ground up like dug a hole in the ground poured a foundation did the walls did everything And that was because I built on um, residential property. I have a pretty large chunk of property here in Portland. And uh, I chose to do it this way because 
I wanted to own something. I've been paying rent for so long in places and seeing the rent go up and, and how much I was paying, it was kind of killing me. So I kind of opted to do something a little bit smaller that I could do the way I wanted and have it actually be a, a worthwhile investment. So I, I built a 1,200 square foot building uh, that's concrete block, cement foundation. It's like 16 foot ceilings in the center. Sweet. On scissor trusses. And, and it's pretty cool. And I actually had uh, help from a guy that some of you guys, I think, know, Andreas Magnuson. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's been my freaking uh, little fairy godmother father <laughs> thing uh, the, the the good devil on my shoulder i guess uh just like yeah. a, anytime i've had questions about stuff because he he's built a bunch of studios and has a lot of knowledge uh, I, I have built one other studio and i had no clue what i was doing back then it was like 12 years ago so this is the first time i really got to build something with some knowledge and a, and a budget to do things the way I wanted. So my first studio that I built was kind of the same situation. It was like in my parents' basement. And when I built mm -hmm. it, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing until I tried to reamp the first guitar and realized it was shaking the whole damn house or a drum set. And then I was yeah. like, oh my God. So when I get in the next place, I'm going to actually know what I'm doing. And it's amazing how just not understanding simple things like, a, you know, an MSM wall or having, you know, two sets of studs with an air gap and knowing how to do yeah. that. You can make a simple mistake just by not understanding the basic fundamentals of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like noise transfer and acoustic, uh, I hate to use soundproofing because that's the wrong word for it. And I can't think of the word, but you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I, yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. Build, building a room that is as soundproof as possible, but you're not like, you're actually building it as a soundproof structure and not like soundproofing a room. Yeah. Rooms within rooms. Yeah. That's why I wanted to start from the ground up is because I looked into like, you know, getting a building and most places around here have wood floors, you know, like uh, truss floors. So that that's like impossible. Well, I've got that situation right now. Did you overcome that with like a floating floor? No, I'm on the second floor of a building. And actually I made two mistakes when I built this place. Okay. So I'm picture I'm maybe it's like 1200 square feet or something upstairs and I have 600 and the guy across the hall has 600. And when he mm -hmm. built his studio, he didn't have any sort of, he was just a put foam in the corner of the room and it'll stop the sound kind of guy. And I'll just put a bunch of it. Oh, and I'm yeah. just like, holy shit, yeah, uh -oh. you got to go read John Sayers, dude. Yeah. <laughs> so I were on the same deck and I was kind of freaking out because I'm like, okay, I can't afford to build a floating floor. I've, I spent, I think maybe 25 or so thousand dollars on my half of the building, just doing 600 square feet correctly. And I don't want to yeah. spend another five to 10 just to put a floating floor. And so what I yep. did which was a mistake, but it did a really, really good job. Like if he's recording drums across the hall or reamping guitars super loud, I can barely tell. If I hit play on my speakers, I don't know anything or even notice anything yeah. unless the drummer's like super brutal, hard-hitting yeah. dude. But basically I put down a layer of, um, oh, what the hell is it called? Homosote, homocyte, whatever. Yeah, and yeah, it's kind the, of like paperboard. Yeah, yeah. It, it was great for floor impact on the wood floors, and it was awesome when somebody's running or walking down the hall for stopping that, but it's like the mm -hmm. guy said to me after I had already paid to do it and laid it down that it was like a sponge, and I should have done a layer of green glue and added more plywood on the floor, which would have stopped some of the resonance flanking noise that had come through from the other room. So oh, gotcha. that being said, I made that mistake, and it actually wasn't that bad. I can barely hear what's going on, and I've got really good isolation, so it was a I kind of got lucky situation. Situation. So Chris, how are you managing? Cause you're, you're working on like issues and stuff right now, right? Uh, yeah, we just finished up instruments. Yeah. So it's like, how, how are you managing that plus building a, a studio? It was ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> we moved in like day one of issues. They had like a film crew here and all the band and we just moved cause my studio was in my house for a while which is a long story, like this whole thing, the whole new studio was supposed to be built like a year and a half ago, and I just ha ran into all kinds of obstacles. So I basically was working out of half of my house for a couple of years. And um, day one, we just picked up everything and like moved it in and spent all day um, moving into the studio, which wasn't actually done. <laughs> wow. So um, I got it wired like the, the week before I got it wired. I got the doors in. We put all the doors in like the night before they got here, you know, with the floor still unfinished concrete and stuff. But we did make that record in the studio, which is really cool. And now I have a lot of work ahead of me to finish things up. 
Um, like we didn't even have lights. We just had like lamps and stuff for most of the record. <laughs> Jet to pull everything out in order to finish the floor and then set it all yep. back up. Fun. Sort of, sort of actually. Um, all I really have to do is move things to one half of the room yeah. and then back to the other. It's not going to be as crazy as it sounds, but it was worth it to, to make that record in here. Cause I spent a lot of time making sure that this live room sounds really, really cool just in its actual shape and form. Part of my motivation was was to have it ready for that record, and we got set behind. That's an, if you're building a studio, do not, you know, set goals, but don't expect to be done anywhere near the time frame that you think you're going to be done. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Yeah, just every obstacle that could be will show itself. So when you're figuring out the shape of a room, like a live room, from scratch, how do you go about making sure that it will sound good? Actually, um, there, for me, there was like two major things that I was considering. Well, there's three. And one isn't totally complete, and that would be like the actual physical surfaces. But the but the two main things that you can't affect once it's done are dimensions and the overall size and shape. And part of the factor that went into why I built a room this exact shape and size was just different studios that I've worked in over the years and kind of having like a mental bank of what rooms that I like drums and guitars in and what what size and shape of rooms that I really didn't like drums and guitars in. And so I, I, I had that in my mind. And then when deciding what I could build within the entire structure, you know what I mean? Like obviously limited by the size of the whole structure. I played with the numbers. There's a, I think it's like Bob Gold's room calculator. Correct me. I'm probably totally wrong. It's if you Google room calculator. Yeah, there's certain ratios. There's a mode calculator, and I basically just messed with the all the dimensions until I had something that had the least modes um, and the flattest EQ. And did you say that you have an angled ceiling in the live room? Um, I do. Yeah. Because you said it's 16 feet at the at the top. Yeah. Every drum room I've worked in that's gotten a great sound has had an angled ceiling. Yeah, totally. Because you don't want that straight flutter from ceiling to floor because you want like a hard surface on the floor because that's part of a cool uh, sounding drum room. But you don't want that direct flutter. I also have one wall that's offset by uh, 12 degrees. Is there any special material that you're putting on that wall that you've offset or not that wall? In particular, but right now I just have like some simple reel traps up, which is kind of a band-aid for the time being. But I'm building a slat diffuser on probably about 30% of the room. And then the wall that's directly across from the wall that's going to have the slat diffuser is going to be stone. So, um, And the stone's going to be offset, so it'll work like a diffuser, but it'll also be like a cool reflective surface. Stone is really cool. That first room we did drum forge in had a back stone wall, and I really enjoyed recording the kit by it and like listening to the reflections off it, because it, I don't know, it, stone has a certain vibe to it with the diffusion characteristics. It's really cool because it kind of splays sound uh, if you do it right. If it's not just like flat tile, if it's actually like a, a rough surface. Yeah, staggered surface. It just splatters the sound. I don't know how else to explain it. It just splatters the sound. It sounds really cool. Definitely. And are you keeping the floor concrete or wood? or? I am for now. I did a lot of research and asked a lot of guys who build studios for a living. And most of the people I talked to said that there's really not a huge difference between a sealed hardwood floor that's hard enough to protect from things scratching it up and stuff a ton to concrete. They're really similar densities. Um, not exactly the same, but I think from what I've heard, there's uh, the wood versus concrete thing, there's kind of a myth built around it. Like They're not yeah. exactly the same, but it's not like this crazy... I think a lot of people equate concrete floors to like their basement or their garage and you know this is not your basement or your garage it's a pretty rad sounding room my drum room that everyone seems to like has concrete floors uh they don't realize that because it's stamped concrete and it looks like hardwood but it's actually concrete oh cool yeah um awesome it sounds great in there i did put down some plywood sheets or where you set the drums up and that actually sounded kind of cool but it is a pretty big room, and the rest of it is the stamped concrete. And yeah, it sounds great. I think that the reason that people associate the concrete floors with a shitty like basement sound has to do with everything else that's <laughs> that's exactly. on those floors. Yeah, it's it's not the actual concrete floor that's the problem. Well, the absorption characteristics 
of concrete and wood um, by the numbers are almost identical. I've seen a few charts comparing them and seen a lot of yeah. people like at the Sayers Forum make the same argument that Chris is making that it doesn't matter. I mean, I've been in your drum room, AL, and I'll vouch that it sounds freaking amazing. It's a great sounding room. So you got stamped concrete, then there it is. Proof is in the pudding. Yeah, and I think I think if if you really want like to think about that wood sound, it's more actually like in the walls and stuff. And I'm gonna have a lot of wood on the walls, and that's part of building a slat diffuser because you have those softer woods that have a different absorption than like a hardwood floor. And and that's another misconception that's kind of the opposite of the like basement thing. Is like you go into this studio, it's got hardwoods. You see the hardwoods are beautiful, and you're like, oh man, it's those hardwood floors that sound so cool. But it's actually the like finely tuned room and like the you know, softer woods that are decorative, but also there for room EQ purposes. And, and it's all that stuff. It's it's not the hardwood floors that are making everything sound awesome. But they, but they look, look nice. so nice. <laughs> <laughs> they do look nice. I know. I, I know. I I mean, I'm not saying I'll never do it, but right now it's it's not really in the cards. Just get the cheap laminate stuff. It looks good. And it's, you know, if you buy a decent quality, it's pretty durable. That's what I did in here. And I'm really, really pleased that I did it because it looks awesome and it wasn't super expensive. Yeah. I, I did that in my last room, uh, in the last studio that I was renting. I, I might do that in here, but I kind of have it in my mind to do a lot of wood on the walls, just for aesthetics to do a lot of wood on the walls. And then we're going to grind the concrete down enough that you see the pebbles a little bit and nice. then seal that. Oh, um, cool. That's just kind of what I have aesthetically in my my head well that sounds like it's going to be a beautiful room yeah as long as it's it's not carpet cool (laughs) yeah 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 definitely and and what about with the control room how like how big is it and how did you come to those dimensions what were you looking for when you built it like what's what's the big idea yeah (laughs) the big idea with the control room is um, that I wanted to build a room that just like the live room that was as done from the get-go as possible. So I have walls that are splayed 12 degrees, uh, both side walls. I have a the front half of the ceiling is angled down at, I believe, 20 degrees. can't remember the exact number we went with. We had to change it a little bit at the last minute because of an air duct that we kind of messed up on placing super stupid complicated situation but it happens anyways so (laughs) i've got basically a room that looks like a trapezoid and goes towards the back so the main thing that i have to do in the room is just build a huge back wall diffuser because the room itself pushes all the frequencies to the back which was important to me to build a room that i didn't have to like band-aid something in to try to make it sound good and also we dropped the ceilings in that room that posed sort of a problem but we had to do that because of the of the room shape and the modes so the ceiling in that room is actually 12 feet where it's flat so let me get something straight so you think that like panels are band-aids no well maybe i mean if you're trying to build a perfect room yeah it's not a bad thing if you can't build from scratch oh, fair enough but you're going you're going from the point of view that if you build it right you don't need any of that shit uh you need less fair enough yeah i would say the same you need less you're you're working from a different starting point basically and there's no reason not to it wasn't any more expensive to build the room in a shape that sounds better from the start you know, because the shape of the room, the size of the room, the size of the ceiling, and the angle of the walls all play into the frequency curve of the room. So it's easier to, to I guess, band-aid that to how you want it to be perfect or to make the exact room you want as opposed to building a square room or, like, you know, you end up with a cube. There's all kinds of crazy modes that you'll have to work with to eliminate as to where if I build a room that has almost no modes and pushes all the frequencies to the back... I'm working with a much easier room to treat, I guess. I mean, it's the same thing as when trying to mix a project that was tracked well. Uh, Your mix is going to end up a ton better. Um, So let's just take a scenario where, say, you couldn't build your own studio and you had to rent a room at some other place or, you know, whatever the situation Mm -hmm. is. Say you're just starting up and in a bedroom or or whatever. Mm -hmm. What steps would you take to... I guess not quite Band-Aid, but actually uh, perform as much surgery as possible on the room so that it didn't make you insane? Um, that's a tough question. 
You know, one thing I would say is uh, avoid expensive sound proofing or sound fixing products and get online and figure out how to do DIY stuff. Cause you can build, you know, you could build a diffuser for like 60 bucks that goes on your back wall that, um, you know, will kill, will spread all the frequencies out so they don't bounce back at you. You can build acoustic panels for like a 10th of what it costs to buy them pre-built. So that, that would be my advice is get online. I agree with you because not just is it cheaper, but if you go with the super expensive route on a really shitty room and you're kind of a beginner at all this, you're going to be taking a salesman's advice on what to get for your room. They'll run it through mm -hmm. their company's room calculator and tell you, okay, you need this here, this here, that there, and then you just buy it. And that's not necessarily going to solve your room. Uh, so if you go the DIY route, you're going to have a lot more budget to work with. That's important taking into consideration that you might put stuff up and it won't solve the problem. It might not be the right approach. Yeah. And you know what else is, I think is really important about the DIY route. And I, you know, I've been in a bunch of different studios and different situations. I've made records in cabins and just, you know, d done the studio thing all over the place. And the coolest thing about the DIY route and knowing how panels are built and all that stuff is, you know, you could tip a couch on its side and put it in the corner when you're making a record in a cabin that has this weird bass frequency. You kind of get like this understanding of how to create something out of nothing um, as far as making a room work. And also most of that DIY stuff, when you build it, you can take it apart. So say, you know, you're just starting in your bedroom at your parents' house. Are you going to be in, in your bedroom at your parents' house in a year or in two years? Um, you you got to think about that and you don't know where you're going to be. So it's cool to have panels that you can take apart or travel with and, and will work in the next room as opposed to like you're saying, you know, you go to Guitar Center and they type in uh, what you need for a certain size room and you get the RLX like grand master package or some crap. <laughs> and you realize that one, it's not doing much at all for anything other than like high frequencies. And two, it's not going to work in your next room. So, so you got a bunch of useless crap. Well, even with real traps, mm -hmm. just because it says that it does something on the website doesn't mean that that's exactly what you need. Yeah. So you might need more. You might need something else. Like you might need diffusion ex instead of high frequency absorption somewhere, you know, stuff mm -hmm. like that. You're going to have to be playing yeah. around a lot with it. So yep. it's best to uh, be very conservative financially. So mm -hmm. obviously you like to think things through very much. And I want to take this opportunity to segue into something else we want to ask you about. You do really modern sounding records, but you are known for being a very analog oriented guy and for just having a sick hybrid setup. I guess how do you, I guess, maximize your efficiency and keep a fast turnaround time and keep things sounding modern when relying on actual physical gear? Like, how, how do you make it work for you? Because you definitely do make it work for you. Well, there's, there's a few key things there. Um, running, well, understanding the gear is really important. Something that can really waste time is if you get in that mode of like trying to find the perfect piece all the time and every record you're like using something different because you're buying and selling stuff constantly. You got to know the gear. You got to know exactly what you're going to use it for. I mean, it's, it's just like plugins, really. It's not that different. Most of my gear runs in real time through a hardware insert. And most of it, I've actually in the last few years, because of exactly what you're saying, I've been... I look at gear in, in two ways, either it's stepped or detented, or I'm never going to touch the knobs. So recall has to be easy. It could be the best piece of gear in the world. And if it doesn't fit in one of those two categories, I'm probably not going to buy it and probably not going to use it because I do have to either be able to recall it really fast and really accurately, or it just has to be able to sit there and do its thing. And I feed volume into it. If it's a compressor or something, you know, in different ways that, that are automated on the computer. I'm with you on that. It's not like I'm like turning knobs all day and like every song I'm like changing stuff. It's all pretty dialed. I feel like that's the only way to really fulfill the time demands that are required these days. I heard Chris Lord algae. I mean, first of all, he has his room set up so that if you need to change the compressor, you just use a different one. Yep. 
because he has multiple compressors. He has them all set a certain way and they never change. So if he needs more, like whatever, like I want this knob turned a little bit more this way, then instead of turning the knob, he actually just plugs in a different one. Yeah, 1176, nine or 10 or something. Exactly. And then I've also heard that um, he has three identical rooms so that he can be working on three songs or three projects at the same time. So recalls aren't a problem. No, life goals, man. That's <laughs> that's incredible. <laughs> yeah. A big thing with analog gear is each piece kind of has like a sweet spot in gain structuring where it sounds the best and functions mm-hmm. the best for whatever instrument that you like its curve on. And once you kind of find that range, it's usually you want to optimize that piece of gear and there's almost no reason to take it out of that sound because it does it so well that it's yeah, just an exactly. issue, like Chris said, of just driving the right amount of gain into it and you, you know getting that initial gain structuring down and t- figuring out where the tone of it is the best in the in the response and all that stuff that's half the battle with gear and that's it it's like a preset then at that point and it does one thing and it does it amazingly and it has a certain sound yep that's a that's exactly how i treat it and i have you know i have some gear that's like the designated knob twisting gear you know effects and uh, stuff like that 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 i get more hands-on with but that stuff i just print you know, I've got a chaos pad. It's not like I'm going to try to recall a chaos pad <laughs> part or something like, you know, I just, I just record it back in and then it's done and you have that part. And, you know, it's, it's good to commit sometimes too, because then you can move on and get things done. Are you running Pro Tools or a different DAW? Yeah. Pro Tools 10. Do you have like a template mix or template routing session or something where it's all just kind of laid out with your IOs and you load it and you're good? Yeah. Yeah, sort of. I have template sessions that are basically just the buses. I don't necessarily usually template like the separate tracks, but I have like my drum bus set up and, you know, all my vocal sends set up and all that stuff that's always like just there. Um, that I can import easily. Yeah, because I could imagine that that would take, well, I know that it would take forever if you had to redo it every single time. Yeah. Well, why don't we jump into, before we hop into some questions from our listeners, why don't we do like a rapid fire segment? So I'm going to fire off some, like a word, like say vocals, and then you can tell me like what your go-to is. Gear-wise? Yeah, sure. Like what, what, what chains does Chris like to use? What are your favorite pieces? It could be in terms of tracking or mixing, whatever you prefer. Yeah, whatever comes to mind. So I'm ready when you are. <laughs> I think I'm ready. <laughs> Slightly afraid. We'll start with vocals. Oh, vocals. For years, it's been a Telefunken into some kind of awesome preamp into a distressor into an EQ, into my inward connections vac rack, and then a de-esser. Sometimes another EQ. Kick drum. Oh man, that, that there's no answer. Uh, I have like <laughs> ten different mics I use. Um, DW. There's my answer. DW. DW. And a good drummer, right? <laughs> good drums. Good drummer. Okay, snare. Mm, Tama. <laughs> Either Bell Brass or my Monarch going into an SM57 or a Sennheiser MD441 into some kind of awesome preamp. In the mix, I'm doing an E lot of EQ into a Distressor or an 1176, and then probably more EQ. Bass guitar. Oh, um, good sounding bass into, uh, lately it's been a Sadowski preamp into my custom-built Sour Sound 150 head or an Ampeg SVT2 from 1983 into an 810. And I run a DI, but I usually just use the amp tracks and I compress it with a distressor. Drum bus. Drum bus? Uh, (laughs) Distressor. (laughs) Um, Hell yeah. Yeah, distressor, (laughs) distressor, distressor. Uh, It's always 10 DI. So I have a dry bus a distressor bus and a level or bus and the level or is kind of like devil lock for you guys who have the sound toys plugins. And sometimes I actually do a devil, I do a devil lock bus and a level or bus. And when I'm already like crushing with the level or I turn on the devil lock bus for choruses or like the bridge where it's supposed to explode. So I'm just crushing the shit out of it all the time. And that's with 14 dB of compression at 20 to one on the distressor as well. Jesus. Uh, yeah, distressors, you can... Re- I mean, that's where they sound best, though. You can beat the yeah. shit out of them. All right, well, here's one. What about bottom toms? <laughs> Never. Okay. Never. Bottom toms. Never. <laughs> when Danny Carey comes in here, maybe I'll... 
I'll get in. <laughs> okay, overheads. Till then. Um, KM84s or KM184s. Okay. Guitar, miking, heavy, distortion, rhythms. SM57. SM57, sometimes a second SM57. If it's not super chuggy, I'll use a Royer 121. Pretty much no EQ or anything else after that, usually. Acoustic guitar? Oh, either like a nice LDC tube mic or a, a KM84. And a distressor. Distressor 6 to 1. Best acoustic guitar compressor. Orchestra in a metal song. <laughs> <laughs> um, a real orchestra? Um, of course not. S- small. Oh, okay. No, I'm kidding. Um, whatever comes to mind. Yeah. <laughs> well, what, what, whatever, whatever the EQ and reason is. No. Um, <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Small, small condensers, spot mics. Uh, actually, that's interesting. Uh, I'll be quick because this is quick fire. Um, if you're trying to have strings cut over really big guitars and stuff, mic closer and do room mics. If I'm doing something that's supposed to sound nice without the music or it's acoustic, my close mics are probably going to be like three or four feet further back than they would if I was uh, recording metal. Also high pass that or low pass that buzz because strings sound terrible when you can hear that crap. All right. The last and most important one. How do you like your steak cooked? Uh, I don't eat beef. Whoa. Okay, there there it is. He doesn't. (laughs) That's my answer, too. Mind-blowing. Yeah. (laughs) At least it's not well done. (laughs) Well, yeah, no. You get kicked out of here if it's well done. That's right. No, I'm a, you know, I like like my lamb burger uh, medium. I have little bloods, all right. That's good. That's good. All right, it's better than well done. That's a real. Yeah, man. I, don't, I don't want a crispy. I don't want a crispy piece of toast. You don't want a crispy crumpet. <laughs> oh, oh, sick burn! You'll get a pail of water to put out that fire. We've been setting that one up the whole episode. <laughs> All right, so we've got some questions from the crowd. We want to ask you, mm-hmm. and uh, one I was telling you about this. There's one guy that's actually been on the podcast and is one of my production and mixing heroes, asked like 15 questions for you. Okay. So, uh, you know Dan Korneff, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I like Dan. Yeah, he's got a ton of questions for you. So, um, <laughs> oh, I'm kind of scared. No, they're really good questions, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, so okay. you already answered one of them, so I'll go right on to the next one. Dan Korneff is asking, "Is what's one piece of gear that you think every engineer should own? Distressor? Really good monitors. Yeah, distressor, but also <laughs> monitors. Really good monitors. If we're talking about outboard gear, distressor stressor absolutely i like the monitors answer yeah because your outboard gear is no good if you can't hear what it's doing exactly well jeff sackick is asking i would like to know what his monitor choice would be if he didn't have the barefoots i don't have the barefoots anymore so that's a perfect question (laughs) um i sold them about six months ago when i had the opportunity to do a couple mixes on a pair of amphion 218s with the amphion amp 500 amp and they're amazing. They're like the flattest, easiest to mix on speaker. I'm not going to get into like terms for sound because it's ridiculous. But uh, I, I did two mixes and like my first mix was really well received um, or like the first mix for each product was project was so well received that uh, I had never quite nailed it that quick or at least that I was that happy with it translating and being exactly what I wanted. So I sold the barefoots and I kept the Amphions. So would you say stay away from barefoots? No, definitely not. I made great records with them for like seven or eight years. And honestly, so one of the things is that my I had Gen 1 Micromain 27s. And they're, before the Amphions, they were the best speaker I'd ever used. And I've used a ton of different speakers. And I kept trying other stuff to see if there was something better. And the barefoots were, at that point, you know, I couldn't find anything else I liked better until... I went to Barefoot, who's in Portland, and they showed me the Mini Main 12, which is really one of the most ridiculous speakers I've ever heard. And after I heard that, it was really hard to get that sound out of my head. And I will probably buy a pair of those some days, but the Amphions were kind of a bridge between what I was using in the past and this crazy sound I heard that made me feel like everything else sounded like shit. 
which was honestly pretty frustrating. I blame Barefoot for me selling my Barefoot. <laughs> <laughs> They're great, great people though. Barefoot are amazing people for sure. Yo, yo, Barefoot, you're good people. But let me, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to ask you what I think that guy meant in his question. I think what he meant was if you had to buy budget monitors, what would you choose? Oh. I th- I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure that's what he meant. Yeah, that's probably a better question. Well, uh, depends on what the budget is because there's all kinds of different levels and it depends on the kind of stuff you're mixing. Give me a narrow it down. Okay. Let's say you've got 1500 max to spend on two monitors and you do heavy stuff. I would say buy some atoms that are in your price range. I'm not a huge fan of the upper tier atom stuff, but for that budget, I, uh, you know, I don't think I've heard anything that's quite as decent. I think you said they they are fun to listen to, which I like. Yeah, exactly. There, I think that's one thing you really have to judge when you when you're in speakers at that price range. You're probably not going to find something that's super true, but you got to buy something that's not going to fatigue your ears and is really enjoyable to listen to. So Dan Corniff again is asking: Is it difficult working <laughs> where you live, and how do you separate family life and business life? Well, it was really difficult when the studio was inside my house, but now I'm probably about a hundred feet away from the house, which is still very close. I feel like it's improved my family life. It's far enough away; the doors shut, it's soundproof, it's its own world when the doors are shut, and. I feel like it's honestly improved my home life because I don't have to drive all the way back to the studio every time someone needs some little thing, you know. That's huge. If I need to do something at my house, you know, if I need to freaking do laundry, I can take two minutes to put the laundry in the dryer and stuff. And it's been a lot easier, honestly. It's been a lot, lot easier. All right. And um, I guess Dan Corniff again is asking, Mm -hmm. uh, what's (laughs) your Desert Island plugin? Huh. Um... I bet it's not a mixing plugin. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. Uh, what kind of question is that? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what one plugin could do. I mean, I guess if, uh, if I'm on a desert island and I have to mix a bunch of records, I mean, maybe VMR. Is that cheating? Because there's like five plugins in one. No, that's, hey, that's not cheating. That's not cheating. Yeah, that's, that, that, that's what I would say. All right. I wish if Sound Toys had version five out with its friggin' right. all-in-one plugin thing, I might say Sound Toys, but... Speaking of that, one of our lucky subscribers will win a free copy of Sound Toys version 4 native bundle, and you'll also get the upgrade to Sound Toys 5 native bundle for free. Yeah. That's rad. Yeah. That's awesome because they make amazing plugins. Yeah, they're great. Yeah, that's this month's giveaway. So, all right, Dan Corniff again is asking, what grounding scheme do you run at the studio? <laughs> uh, I've. <laughs> The one the electrician put in? Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, well. You can't punt on that. He builds his own gear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, Dan Corniff again. What's your method of data backup? Um, I'm a, I'm a drag-and-drop guy. I have two hard drives that I drag-and-drop stuff to at the end of the night, and then uh, I let two go. I, like, I have two drag-and-drops, and then I clear... Like the third one, if that makes sense. I don't know how to explain it. I don't have anything fancy. I don't use Time Machine or anything like that. And I've never really had an issue with, with files, but obviously that stuff catches up with everyone at some point. Yeah, my, my catch-up point was lightning. Knock on wood, please. Freaking yes. hell. Yeah, my, mine, <laughs> mine was lightning. And from that point on, I started doing backups that were not connected physically to my computer. Um, yeah, wow. yeah it, was, it was a horrible, horrible event. You know, I got really annoyed with that because uh, I know some of the people that listen to this use that. What is it called? The one you recommend? Crash plan. Crash plan. Mm-hmm. Um, I started crash plan. I was really excited about it, and then I went to actually go through the motion of actually backing something up, and it doesn't support network hard drives, so can't use crash plan. Well, why don't you get on normal human computers that aren't like? I'm physically. <laughs> I'm literally physically out of space. Like I have to use <laughs> a, a network hard drive. Because I my computer can't hold any more objects inside of it. <laughs> <laughs> it will literally burst at the seams. Yeah. So next question. Yeah, Dan Corn <laughs> Dan Corniff again asking strangest miking technique you've ever used. Um done some weird stuff. We I did a record where we did a whole section of vocals through an acoustic guitar pickup, which was like a piezo pickup, which actually turned out incredibly awesome 
I don't know. I feel like I've done some weird stuff over the years. That's a pretty good one. Yeah. iPhone microphone's a cool thing to do. If you're ever looking for that effect. Strangest miking technique for a guitar. Um, man. I don't know if this is strange or not, but I find myself putting an SM57 in the middle of the room, pointed at the ceiling. <laughs> Um, when I want like a rad room sound, but I've, I don't know, super weird. I've done that. Actually, I have done that in my drum room, tracking drums, like maybe 15 feet away from the drum set I've, Yeah, in just a random spot it has worked great. Yeah. I guess another one on that topic is, uh, <laughs> at the very back corner of my room, put a microphone, uh, SM57 facing into a cymbal. That was kind of on, <laughs> that was on its side, it, like it was yeah. on a mic stand. The mic stand went through the hole in the cymbal, and the cymbal was basically a saucer picking up the drum set from across the room, and then did that sound cool? Yeah, actually, surprisingly, it did. Yeah, cool. but what preamp did you use and why? API. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good choice. <laughs> here's an, here's another one um, from Dan Corneff. Uh, how many hours do you typically work in a day? 30 or 40 <laughs> 30 or 40 <laughs> hours a day um yeah uh you know it, it varies it's always at least eight and usually stops at 16 i try not to go past that and i try really hard to only work six days a week i've actually just recently hired an engineer so i'm hoping to bring this down a little bit but i i work a lot clearly all right dan corniff again drummer pet peeves um, guys who are worse than me? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I like that answer. Yeah, that answer. Um, yeah uh, I got a lot of little drummer pet peeves, you know. Um, guys who try to be flashy but completely lack fundamentals, like being able to center their hits and be consistent with velocities. Guys who don't tighten their cymbals enough and just let them wash around and flip-flop everywhere that's probably the most annoying thing for me that one bugs um, the shit out of me too i just got angry listening <laughs> to that i have two packs of felts sitting around just to stack people when they try to pull that crap on me yeah same here okay here's another one from dan corneff favorite songs to reference when mixing um actually one of my number one references is nothing wrong by jimmy Eat world that mix is completely different than every other song on Futures, and there's something about it that if I reference it, my mixes turn out awesome. And I've been referencing that since it came out, and that's still like one of the only songs I reference, honestly. I know that's weird. It doesn't matter what type of music. It just gives me like a focal point, and for some reason, that works. So you only reference to one song? Sort of. <laughs> okay. And do you... I mean, I, I reference stuff within the genre as well, but like my, for some reason, that song is my go-to to like reset my brain to know where I'm at. It's, it's, it's my North Star. You're not the only guy I know who does that, actually. I know a few guys who will reference one song. Throughout the years, they've referenced that one song just because they know it. So that that's it. Yeah, I know everything. It's the North Star. I know everything that where I'm going from it. So it all just works. Finn has a question. Oh, <laughs> Finn <laughs> okay. asks, how can I tell Chris and Craig from Rise apart? Um, I think Craig is uh, like 0.5 inches taller than me. He's much more physically fit. Um, and I think those are the only two ways, uh, aside from that, we're identical. And last question, and this is from Dan Corniff again, and, uh, what's the most ridiculous request from a band? Oh, geez, man. I see, I try to block stuff like that out of my head so I don't hate my job. <laughs> um, man, I've definitely had some ridiculous requests I'm trying to access the old memory vaults here. Uh, damn, I don't know if I have a good answer for this. I think I'm way too good at blocking out bad memories. I'll cover one in just because it's funny. I, the most ridiculous thing a band ever said in the studio to me is I had a local band in like within the first two years of me recording. And the kid gets out of the vocal booth. I'm mixing. He's, I stop it. He turns to his buddy and goes, dude, now that we have a good recording, we can be dicks to people. This is sick. Whoa. <laughs> what the fuck? That's amazing. Was, I just turned around that's, and I'm like, wait, that's, what, what that's he, he was serious about it. 
<laughs> Obviously, wow. they didn't get very far. Yeah. But <laughs> wow. So there you go. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that's a that's a great attitude. <laughs> def- definitely win. Hey, you got to leave it on a positive note. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I was thinking more along the lines of, um, can we take a break from vocals so you could go pick up my girlfriend from the airport? <laughs> that was, that's, what I, that's what I was thinking. I've, I've actually gotten a couple Whew. of those. That um, was great. Yeah, yeah, I've. As a matter of fact. I've got in that one as well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, actually, I had one like a long time ago when my studio was at my parents' house and bands would come from out of town and they would have to rent like a hotel room and they'd all stay in the same hotel room. One time I had a drummer who claimed that he couldn't drum unless he slept in a room alone and asked if he could sleep at my parents' house if they had a guest room and that he would need to sleep in that guest room or he wasn't going to be able to play the next day. And that was, <laughs> oh my that God. was, that's actually totally one of the most ridiculous requests I've ever had. Yeah, it is ridiculous. That redefines yeah. imposing. Yeah. How did you uh, deal with that? Well, I said no. Okay. <laughs> did he play drums the next day? I, um, not, honestly, not very well. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there was a lot of uh, drugs and alcohol involved in, that guy's situation too. So, you know, I, I have a feeling it wasn't sleeping alone in a room. And I think that he definitely would have been doing his lonely drugs, whether he was alone or not. Do you think that he would, would have played better if he had slept in that room? <laughs> I no, absolutely not. <laughs> no, I don't think it would have changed. That's one of the craziest things I've ever heard. Really. Um, I've had some pretty crazy experiences with bands too, but I've already talked about them on the podcast. But definitely the having to become people's chauffeur thing is among my top pet peeves for bands. I actually was asked to do it so much that it became one of the things that I always brought up when negotiating with a band is they're going to have their own transportation. It's like one of your stipulations. Yeah. That's a, that's good. Well, that's good. I don't, I don't get that that much anymore but yeah well you got to realize that since the place in florida is in my house yeah and they're staying in my house the whole time like five six weeks or something yeah that's rough yeah if they don't have transportation then you don't have a life exactly because (laughs) you got joel and joey have been to where that house is there's nothing near it so it's Mm -hmm. not you know they could walk a few miles in the summer in florida but that doesn't usually pan out very well. So, yeah, I no. I definitely yeah. make them have transportation. So with that, dude, thank you for coming on. Mm-hmm. Yes. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, of course. It's been awesome. Thanks for having me. Is there anything you want to plug? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, thanks for coming on, dude. It's been a pleasure as always. You rule. And thank you. Good hanging out, guys. Yeah. Talk soon. Take it easy. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Creative Live, the world's best online classroom for creative professionals with classes on songwriting, engineering, mixing, and mastering. Go to creativelive.com slash audio to start learning now. To ask us questions, suggest topics, and interact, visit URM.